Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring boundary pushers, rabble-rousers, freaks, and geeks who are shaking up the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and joining me in the co-host chair today is fellow chef Robert Fivash, president of Brand Fuel. In today's podcast, we delve into the world of product safety why it matters, and how we can get people to truly care about it. I must admit that when I first spoke to Tim Brown, our guest today, about doing a product safety podcast, I was concerned about it coming across as dry and boring. After all, everyone knows that product safety is important, but many distributors in our industry often think of landing the business first versus thinking of the mechanics of the product. After all, isn't that the supplier's job? However, I felt if anyone could shine a bright light on product safety and make it interesting and relevant to the average distributor and the industry at large, it was Tim Brown. Tim Brown is the Executive Director of Operations at the Quality Certification Alliance, commonly known as QCA. In this role, Tim is responsible for the overall direction and operational oversight of QCA. He is focused on increasing QCA's visibility both within the supplier-distributor community as well as more broadly outside the industry to ensure QCA remains a responsive organization in terms of educating its participants on issues related to responsible sourcing. We are also joined by Cliff Quicksell. Cliff has been involved in the promotional products and sportswear industries for the last 33 years. During this tenure, he has been a mainstay on the education circuit at PPAI, ASI, and several regional associations. Cliff's perspective on product safety comes from his supplier and distributor backgrounds, not to mention his many years observing industry trends. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. I think this will be really interesting. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having us. You bet. All right. So, Tim, I want to go straight for the jugular here. How do you make product safety something that the average distributor sales rep truly cares about? Well, that's actually a very good question. And I think we've tried all kinds of ways in this industry to do that. At the end of the day, it's not the most attractive subject. And at the end of the day, sales reps, they're here to make money. This is how they make their living. So trying to convince people that in addition to all these things you have to worry about, marketing, customer service, and if you're a smaller distributor, you know, you're running your business, now we're going to throw on this other piece, a complex, difficult to understand at times piece. It's not swallowed very well or taken very well. 
the way I see it, if we're going to get the sales reps to care versus trying to convince them, which has been the protocol for many years, it's to get their clients to care. Their clients right. have to care about this. And the problem is many are not even aware. Many end buyers, just like retail customers, assume that everything they buy or you know whatever they do, they go to the store, they assume everything's being done right on the back end. Yep. And the truth is, that's not how things are. And especially when you have more of a free sourcing environment, such as can happen within our industry. So they really have no idea how things are sourced. They have a false sense of security in the products they're buying. But when they know and they understand the risk and reality, my belief is that they're going to start insisting on this and really force the average rep to step up their compliance game. Right. And we'll talk about that more, I'm sure, as we go forward with some things that I'm doing. But it really comes down, short answer, their clients have to care. Then they're going to care. Right. And I think that's a really good point because I think that an educated end client that knows what they want and they can come to the table and to some extent maybe even request a certain supplier line or they come with a specific marketing brief and they're giving that information to the distributor salesperson. The distributor salesperson, they know if they answer that properly, then they're going to end up with an order. So I see it as no different that if the end client comes to the table, it says product safety is really important. I only want to be working with suppliers that have product safe products, then the distributor will fall in line. There's no question about that. So I want to follow up with another question for someone who buys your answer, but I've got another one here. So most salespeople think that any supplier they are dealing with is managing product safety issues. Is this a naive outlook? <laughs> it's an extremely <laughs> naive outlook, and it's just downright risky. Yeah. Um, there are many good suppliers out there. And obviously, from what I do, and I don't want to be a commercial here, so some are accredited, others are not. It all comes down to vetting the suppliers. And effective vetting, it takes time and resources. It has to be a proactive approach. And there must be some kind of baseline knowledge that the distributor has on their side in order to effectively vet. Yeah. You know, distributors do not need to be experts in this area. I've been saying that for the last several years in all my presentations, do not need to be an expert. But you do have to have a basic baseline understanding. You have to know what questions to ask. And there's plenty of resources out there. So there's lots of good suppliers. Some have chosen a certification route. Others have not. But it's up to the distributor to find out what they're doing and what they can do to protect the clients and the distributor in the long run, regardless of the stature of those suppliers. Is there a case, Tim, where a supplier would choose not to be certified by QCA, but they would be considered a product-safe supplier? Oh, yeah. They're out there. There's companies that they're doing the right stuff. You know, they have very robust programs in place. I've talked to them. I've bought from them in the past. But prior to coming here, prior to working at PPA, I was a staunch advocate for QCA, my current organization. I drove a lot of spend there, but they weren't the only suppliers I was using. I mean, let's be honest. We don't have a ton of suppliers in that group right now. Yeah. And so your categories are limited. And while we have a lot of categories, you're limited somewhat on some stuff. But I had to really effectively vet those companies. And there were ones that passed the mustard. That's great. You know, there's some day that, you know, maybe they may change their scope and say, hey, you know, I'll get an additional strategic advantage by going through the process. Right now, they don't see that as being necessary for their organizations. That's perfectly fine. 
Right. There's others. Just like, think about RAP certification, think about ISO certifications, things like yeah. that. Companies aren't doing that just because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. They're doing it because they see it as a strategic advantage for their organization to grow their business. That's why they dump the time, the money, all the resources into it. It's the same with us. We're no different. So those that see it as a value are going to do it. Those that do not, that doesn't mean they're not doing everything right. It just means the distributor has a lot more work to do yep. in vetting them. Yeah. I want to ask one more question, then I'm going to turn it over to Robert and Cliff for some commentary and questions. So, Tim, I want to ask about what defines product safety. So let's look at a typical promotional product like a tote bag. What would a product unsafe tote bag look like versus a product safe tote bag? That is the, the question. <laughs> that is it. it all depends. You're welcome. I'm putting on that lawyer response right now. It all depends. Right. It is That's probably fine. the most common question I get. And the reason being, this is situational. I often talk about this. It is all situational. That's why it's important to have some baseline knowledge. It depends on some primary factors. Your intended audience, whether or not that audience includes children, how the products are going to be distributed. Are they going to be distributed all at one time, over a period of time? Is this one event, several events? What do you do with your leftovers? You know, the stuff that doesn't get handed out, do you donate that? How do you donate it? Where will the products be distributed location-wise? You know, will it all be in one place from multiple locations, multiple states, internationally? What kind of logos are going to be used? Do the products themselves or the logos have any childlike appeal or play value? There's so many factors that go into it. That is going to make it a safe or unsafe product based on the standards and regulations that are out there. Right. Maybe I'll just give maybe a simple example. So I know I use a tote bag, but why don't I give an example of a lanyard? Okay. So if I follow what you're saying, a lanyard could, the actual material could be safe from the perspective that you put it around your neck. It's not going to give you hives, right? But mm -hmm. if you were selling a lanyard to a daycare and it didn't have the quick release at the back, then that would yep. be considered product unsafe, even if it was coming from a great supplier like Snugs or AZX or any of the great suppliers that sell lanyards. Am I following you there? I'm following you, and I'm going to make it even more difficult here. Oh, I'm going to try to not to, but <laughs> that's an interesting product because okay. right now there's no that I'm aware of. Now, I could be wrong on any of this. You know, I'm not a true expert. I have a lot of knowledge in this area, but I am not the true expert. But from my knowledge and talking with different people, there's not a specification right now for lanyards. So while a best practice is to use that breakaway clip, to my knowledge, there's no mandatory voluntary standards that say this must be used for children. I would highly recommend it. I think it's a matter of best practice. I think it demonstrates responsibility. But there's not a specific rule to say that is the case or not the case. So again, working with informed suppliers, having some baseline knowledge of the questions to ask as a distributor helps you work through this and position yourself in a way that you're protecting your client in the long run. Because I guarantee you, if something were to happen and somebody gets choked and it doesn't have the breakaway, everybody's going to be screaming, why didn't it have a breakaway? It was you know, used for children. So really, I'll grab another product for you to maybe help you. You talked about the bags a minute ago, you know, a tote bag. 
in and of itself, the tote bag doesn't have a whole lot of restrictions on it. You know, there's not a whole lot you're dealing with. But say we're going to take that tote bag and we're going to hand it out at the Boy Scout Jamboree or the Cub Scout Jamboree. We're going to hand it out at a day camp, you know, or a summer camp where it's all focused directly on the kids. Yep. Well, now you better make sure, and there's probably a good chance there's no lead or phthalates probably in the product itself. But are you decorating it with ink or is it a heat transfer? What are you putting on this bag now? Do we have to worry about lead? Do we have to worry about phthalates? We must have a tracking label on it. You know, those are all the questions you start asking. Okay, my primary audience is there. Yes, it better be tested for lead. And that includes the decoration. Right. So you get into knowing what questions to ask, how to apply it. And then companies that you sell to may have their own standards. There's a very big theme park that says, hey, we want everything tested to CPSIA. Yeah. Yeah. Because our appeal is across all audiences. Yep. And we know what our primary audience is. So yeah. I hope I answered it without getting too convoluted. It's situational. No, you certainly did answer it. And I just have a final kind of comment to wrap that up. And then I want to move it over to Robert is that I first started off by asking you, how do you get the average sales rep to care about this? So if we now come full circle, so imagine you're that sales rep that has done a little bit of extra homework. You know that you sell to kids camps or you know you sell to organizations that sell to young kids. And your client may not even be product safety aware. They're just so busy just running their business that they just need some tote bags and they're price sensitive. You come in and say that you've thought about this, that you have experience in this case and that you know, all of your inks have been tested for leads and phthalates and you know, lanyards have got pullaway cords. Think about how that person compares to the other guy who then comes in who's not mentioning any of that and the other guy is just coming in with a low price. And so what I love about this is it's an educated distributor salesperson that's able to take, I started off as saying was a rather boring topic and is able to convert that into a sales advantage for their distributorship, which retains their margin and loyalty of the client. That's what's got a, a distributor salesperson's attention now. Exactly. When you embrace this, I talk about embracing it. It's one thing to sit through classes, educate yourself a little bit, talk the talk. This is not something that you can just talk your way through. Yeah. You need to understand it. Again, you don't need to be an expert. You want to be well-informed and get the basics. But then when you get past that, the next step is truly embracing it. And when you embrace it, you invest more time in it and you can use it as a strategic advantage. And there are going to still be customers who do not care. And that's when you have a business decision to make. I can tell you when I worked for the distributor, we walked away from some orders, some sizable orders, because at the end buyer, our client, did not care about it and was not willing to pay a little bit extra. We had a decision to make. And in that business decision, we believed we had too much to lose. We weren't willing to risk our own reputation, let alone the reputation of our client. If they didn't care about their reputation, then that was on them. It's up to them. I'm not telling everybody what to do. I'm just telling you how we've handled it. Just to piggyback on there, one of my clients that I've been pushing on this whole agenda on product safety actually went to her largest client, which was a major aircraft manufacturer that wanted 5,000 power banks. And she refused to do the order. And her client went, what are you talking about? She goes, that product is not product safe. It's just not. She goes, but that's the one we want because of the price. She says, well, I'm sorry, then you'll have to buy. She says, you mean to tell me you're going to turn down this order for like $25,000? This is what she said. She says, I'm not going to risk your reputation by doing that. 
And the woman actually took a seat back and she said, if you're that convinced about it, then I won't buy them. I'll get the ones that you recommend. So to Tim's point, until people have the wherewithal to just stand up and say no, and I think if you turn it around and say, look, I'm protecting your brand. If you don't want to protect it, that's one thing, but I choose to protect the brand. And I think it made a big difference, as Tim said. You have to walk away sometimes. That's a great story, Cliff. You know, as a fellow distributor, I've noticed probably the last four or five RFPs that have come across our desk, there have been two or three questions about product safety. They want to know specifics. They want to know what would happen with a recall, et cetera. So to your point, Tim, I think the clients see there's an interest there, but I still would question whether they're willing to pay for it. And Cliff, you mentioned one instance where your folks were able to convince the client to go another direction. I just wish that were the norm, both on the distributor salesperson side and on the client side, because I don't think it is quite yet, but hopefully that day is coming. It's going to take some time. Think about where we were in 2008, 2009, 2010 as an industry. And not just as an industry, our buyers, we've come a long, long way, come a long way. And it's now part of the conversation out there. But still, it's not happening overnight. It takes time. These kind of things do. But I do not see us going back the other direction. Yeah. Do you think at some level that the end users will kind of think that could possibly be a ploy just to you know, get them to pay more for something and it's not really valid? I will say that I think some have thought that. When I was working for the association, I would get phone calls once in a while from a distributor saying, hey, I've listened to your webinars. I've seen you live doing presentations. They've talked to me in person and we've discussed situations. And now they're trying to tell their client, their client's calling BS on them. And so what they Mm -hmm. have done is called me, emailed me, and I'll even occasionally get something here today still. Hey, Tim. I'm having trouble. My client's not believing what I'm telling them. Can you show me some stuff or give me some information that I can give them? PPAI has a ton of stuff. They have end buyer documents. They have some stuff that's designed for having that conversation, end buyer safe. There's stuff that we can point them to at the Consumer Product Safety Commission. I've gotten on calls already with the end client just to say, no, this stuff is real. You need to understand it. You've got somebody who's protecting you right now. Here's what it's all about. You know, I'm not out there touting that particular distributor over one or another. I'm just explaining the law, explaining the reality of it, and protecting the industry in that regard. So the more I can do that, the better. PPAI does it. The information is out there. So it's not being afraid to have the conversation and then ask for help if the customer's not buying it. I want to jump in and ask a question, the same question of Robert and of Cliff, because I think you'll have different perspectives. So Robert, I know specifically you have mentioned in some past podcasts about securing large volume RFP style business that you've been very proud to win, but you've also acknowledged that you've had to bend over backwards from a pricing standpoint. It's been very, very price competitive and that margins have been an issue in terms of landing the business. Have you found in any of these pitches that there may have been opportunities to play the product safety card, whether it's calling in Tim Brown or you investing a lot of time and energy and making product safety, maybe a point of differentiation to A, make yourself stand out more such that you could charge more for your services and products, or do you not think that we're quite there just yet in terms of product safety as a chip to increase margin? 
Yep, I don't think we're there yet. I'm just speaking from our perspective and our experience. But I think when you get an RFP like that, there are two distinct parts of the RFP. There's the area where you're able to write essays and answer questions in long form, where you can explain in great detail product safety and the things that your company might be doing, who you're associating with, your buying group, the different suppliers that you use and their track record. So there's that piece and you can get your message across there. And I think that's important. But unfortunately, the second part of the RFP is the standalone Excel spreadsheet where you have a hundred different items that you are pricing and you may be able to put in alternate items and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, there's a group that's looking at what you wrote and then there's a separate group that's looking at the Excel spreadsheet. And maybe they talk and maybe they don't, but we have found that it's really, really difficult to mash those two together and see a real connection between the two. I wish it weren't that way. And and obviously everybody on this call knows about reverse auctions and all the different ways that procurement departments can get that price down. But very rarely does the product safety piece jump over that Chinese wall to the spreadsheet. That's at least what we found. Cliff, how about your experience? You know, I'm a big fan of profitability and RFPs and things like that. I probably help review maybe a hundred or so a year from different folks. And they do become very convoluted in my perspective. And I think what happens is that race to the bottom type thing from a profit standpoint, it's something that I personally don't choose to engage in. And most likely, if someone were to ask me about it, I would leave that to other people. I'm not a big fan of that. So I don't know if I answered your question in detail, but I'm more about being safe and being profitable than I am willing to take business where I have to kind of choke myself financially. So I don't know if that answered the question. It does. And if I go maybe one step further, So we've got Robert's perspective, who's like, hey, I like product safety, but at the end of the day, these RFPs are a real bear in terms of us winning them on anything really other than just a good, sharp price because these end clients are so savvy. So there's that perspective. Cliff, from your perspective with your distributor experience, have you seen a scenario where a distributor has been able to lead with product safety and land the business and be able to retain a really healthy margin? by playing that card? Or have you not seen something like that? No, no, I certainly have. But the case in point that I gave you a few minutes ago about the young gal that I've been working with that said, I'm just not doing the deal. I'm not doing the deal at all. And so by virtue of the fact that they had to use a more expensive power bank, she was able to get the margins. But I don't think her goal was to use product safety to be more profitable. I think it was to use product safety because she's kind of drawn the line in the sand that she's not going to jeopardize her client's brand nor her own for the sake of getting an order. So that's where I think we've been on it. Right. Let me jump in there real quick on that to follow up with you, Cliff. I think in the end, you may not be more profitable on that particular order, but you stand a good chance of being more profitable in the overall volume you should continue, likely, theoretically, get from that client because now you've built such a basis of trust. You know, I often say that product safety is like the V8 moment. You know, people don't care about it until there's a problem. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything kind of falls apart. And it is a sticky situation. How do you get people to buy into it? I know that some of the folks that I work with, their biggest struggle is dealing with decorators. There's like, oh my God, half the decorators don't even know. And then they're getting a mixed message. One person saying, I'm saying you need to be considerate of this, very considerate. 
their clients are unaware. Some of the decorators are like, oh, you don't need that. That's foolish. And so the distributor at some levels in the middle going, what do I do? I have to make a living. I have to eat. So it is complex for sure. Great answer though, Cliff. Appreciate that. I'm going to move on to a topic here. Product safety is not inexpensive, right? I think the perspective among many in the industry, whether you're a distributor or really, I guess, more appropriately a supplier, is that it's an expensive endeavor to jump into. And I think there's also a group of folks that, I guess, when they put their cynic hat on, they feel like these expenses, these investments are really marketing investments rather than any kind of supply chain improvement or or real safety improvements. But Tim, you've mentioned to me in the past that actually there are many operational efficiencies that suppliers can achieve through product safety and through some of the things that you all are doing. Give us a sense for what some of those might be. What you end up getting out of it is, you know, think of kind of like what you get when you go to a lean manufacturing process. You've got more visibility into your supply chain, more visibility into the products you're using and the supplies. You have consistent processes and procedures established. There's continuous monitoring for defects or any other types of issues. So this creates less issues or a reduction in issues. It allows you to recover from incidents and issues quicker. It really It's the same thing when they start doing this from a compliance standpoint, because there's a synergy with all of it. And so looking at it from product quality, product safety rolls into product quality to me. There's a lot of synergies there. So you're looking at, you know, effective management practices that set the stage for predictable outputs of the company's products from the manufacturing process to ensuring that the goods continue to meet the intended requirements. So like I said, less errors, which means less returns, less refunds which results in a cost savings. Companies that have effective environmental stewardship programs pay less in electricity, pay less in water consumption, they reduce their waste, and the list goes on and on. From a supplier standpoint or somebody going through this, they do achieve other efficiencies that save money. And I would say like on our website, there's a smaller supplier in the industry that right on our front page, we have a video and misconceptions about QCA, my organization, But really, you can look at it somewhat for compliance in general. And he talks about all the operational efficiencies that he's gained as a result of tightening up processes and getting things in place and being more robust on the compliance side of things. That's pretty interesting. And I'm glad you mentioned the smaller supplier because, and again, this may be an impression that's not correct that some in the industry have, but it appears to some that, you know, again, we talked about the expense of getting product safety certified. The larger folks, whether they're distributors or suppliers, and again, it's mostly on the supplier side, I assume, but these folks can afford it. They're multi, multi hundred million dollar companies. Many of them get certified. And you wonder whether the scrappy young supplier that's putting product out there that we all love, right? It's the stuff that we want in front of our clients. That needs to be part of the future of our industry for us to really have the greatest things out there in front of the client versus the commodity type items. But I would expect that some of those smaller, scrappier, bootstrapping suppliers may not have the funds to be QCA certified. How do you help those guys along or do you? And where do they look to make sure that their products are safe for us? Well, kind of to answer that, you know, there may be some in an organization that views that this is for big companies only. And there's a lot of sentiment out there that this is for big companies. But make no mistake, the majority of the costs are tied up in operations. And so I spent, like I said, the last few years preaching product safety aware message. And I can tell you a lot of the suppliers, they did something with their newfound knowledge. So it's doing something with this. 
you know, whether that means spending the additional money for accreditation or spending the money to just do the right thing or a combination of both, that's for each individual organization. But at the end of the day, you got to spend some money and do something for this to be effective. And I can tell you, after we taught it, many did nothing after participating in the learning opportunities. But those that got it, they did do something. And for those that got it, they implemented it at their own speed and in their own way. Does that mean they ran out and invested in something like QCA right away? Absolutely not. A compliance program is a living, breathing thing that, you know, it continues to grow and improve over time. And financial health plays a factor. So, you know, what are your financial resources? What can you afford to get started? Something is better than nothing, but it is going to cost you something. Then as you get up and moving and you see more of it, now does it make sense for your company to invest more on the QCA side? Again, that comes down to the individual company. You may hit everything you need to hit. Your product line is easier to manage. You have good insight to it. You've put in the right processes and procedures that you really have it tied up. And for those that do, great. But you know, just as in life, we can go it alone or we can ask for help. Those that ask for help tend to usually have more success. An organization like ours helps. But again, at the end of the day, that has to resonate with them buyers because your ROI for investing in this is what every company is looking for, whether it's investing in their own program or investing in an outside party like us. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to move on just to a, a, a sort of a twisting, turning topic here. But the bottom line is I think we'd all agree that there are lots of things in our business world, in our communities that are grounded by the legal system. Many norms and customs and laws are in place and enforced by either the threat of legal action or just the fact that the system is there. And so when you start to think about product safety, I'm going to throw a hypothetical out to any of you guys and kind of ask your thoughts on it. Because when you walk the path of this from A to Z, there's some questions in my mind. And so the hypothetical is Brand Fuel, our company, is selling any kind of desktop product or so. We buy it from PCNA. It turns out that this particular product has some sort of defect or some sort of chemical that's consumed by a child and that child gets sick or dies. Brand Fuel gets sued by the client. PCNA likely gets sued by the client. The end user, the recipient of that desktop item, sues Brand Fuel, sues PCNA, and sues the client. But no one, and, and I may be wrong here, but my impression is that no one realistically can sue the Chinese factory, which is likely where it came from, or recoup any kind of compensation from that factory. So what is that factory's incentive to sort of play along in this legal framework that kind of keeps everybody in line when they're kind of outside of that framework? Does it all fall apart at that point, or is there a way to pull them into it so that we're all a part of this? Well, I guess I'll start with the pessimistic side. Good luck getting anything out of a Chinese supplier at that point. Now, there are exceptions. It's funny when you talk to people in airports and you travels. I met a guy the other year that this is what he does. He works with overseas with American organizations to try to work through these issues. He's an attorney and that's what he does. So we shared what we did and talked about it. And it was refreshing to know that it's there. But even his take is it's rare to get you know anything accomplished in this area. So it comes down to much as we tell the distributor market, be mindful of who you spend your money with. The more volume you give to a specific supplier, the more important you are to them and such. 
it goes the same with the suppliers, with the factories they're working with. The more important they are to that Chinese supplier, the more likely that they'll be able to get some kind of resolution. But really, from a legal sense, it generally all stops at our border. And what I mean by this, that the Chinese company is likely not going to get sued in this situation. They risk losing business from the supplier. But again, that depends on how much volume they do with them and are they willing to walk away from that or not. The supplier and the distributor are likely both going to be on the hook. To what extent you know, each will be liable? It depends on what they knew, what they should have known, what they did, what they did not do, and everything on the front end, really, to mitigate risk in the first place. This is why it's so important to know your suppliers. You require proof of compliance, share information, That'll help the supplier provide the right product in a given situation. And sometimes that means the supplier is going to tell you, I'm not doing this order for you. Absolutely not. So, you know, when something like that happens, it's actually a good thing. I've received calls from distributors upset because a supplier refused an order based on knowing it was going to kids and the product that they wanted to use. And the situation in those when the distributor just wasn't informed and they took this as a bad thing. Whereas then when I got on the call, I told you how sometimes I get called into this stuff. I explained that you've got a supplier that's protecting you right now. And so it goes all the way down through the chain. So I hope that answered your question. It does. And it makes me curious. Have you all sent out any feelers to the Chinese production facilities, the factories, or is it just too sort of murky or would you have pressure from the U.S. suppliers to kind of avoid that? Well, we personally aren't going to get involved in that piece with the suppliers. It really comes down to a legal thing here. Where do our laws start and end and who can be held to those laws? Yeah, I don't mean in the legal sense in terms of there's a lawsuit and you guys jump in. I mean more as you know a potential client for you guys, another area where you all could reach out and actually certify the factories. Oh, right now, there's no plan for that. It is a very different, complex thing. We, now, we do audit the factories that are used by our supplier. You know, that's the process. We do audit the factories, but we aren't certifying the factory itself. We work through the suppliers to put the processes in place. And then by auditing the factories we do, we're able to determine if they're up to snuff or not. But the certification is not for the factories at this time. It's only for the suppliers in the industry. I want to continue to just kind of mine this question because I think that this is perhaps something that's on a lot of distributors' minds. So again, to use Robert's hypothetical example here with PCNA, we're not mentioning PCNA other than they're an example of a large, respected, product safety-obsessed company that has got excellent supply chain relationships in China as well as throughout the world. So I'm just using them as just an example. So if we go back to Robert's case here, so Robert goes and sells this big border to a Fortune 500 company. He sources it from Leeds, not even asking any questions about product safety because he's working with Leeds in this case. I mean, what could right. go wrong? And sells it to the company and let's say they're power banks and the power banks start exploding, catching fire. And Fortune 500 company then goes back to Robert. Robert says, oh, well, thank goodness I dealt with Leeds. And then he calls up Leeds and what happens at that point? You don't have to answer specifically for PCNA because, of course, I'm just using them as an example. But remember, I asked that first question about is it naive for the distributor to assume that it's the supplier's issue? In this particular case, would brand fuel be completely off the hook because they happen to work with one of the most respected companies in this industry? Or is that a naive approach? 
there is a sense of comfort working with the companies that have gone through the process and it's been validated. So that's a plus. Everybody always is going to have some level of liability. Yeah. And just like I said earlier, it depends to the extent. So a good question to ask for that a brand fuel would ask of the supplier would be, hey, we need proof of testing. Can you send me the testing documents? Can you provide the certifications? Things like that. That's just simple due diligence. You're not having to go in as deep. These guys are going to have what they need because it's part of their processes. What you're going to get into, though, with this is that there's no guarantees regardless. So we can audit to our heart's content. We can have every process in place. There are still issues. It's just nothing's perfect. What the hope is here is, and the intent is that that risk is mitigated. It's reduced based on all the processes, procedures, audits, and all that stuff. So in preparation for that, now you get into disaster recovery plans and recall plans. And everyone that goes through our program, they're required to conduct at least, at minimum, one mock recall a year. And so that is to keep their team, their organization, everybody sharp. And so if a situation happens and Robert gives the supplier a call and says, hey, these things are blowing up, they're catching fire, we got a problem. The organization, one, as long as they've done what they're supposed to do, and so you've asked for that proof up front in the certifications, you've got that, things were done right, now we have a recovery plan. We know we can go back and say what happened, where it was, we're going to investigate with the supplier, our factories, we're going to find out what's going on, and we're also going to work appropriately to get these things off the market or work with the Consumer Product Safety Commission to see if we do need to take any further action. There's a whole set of protocols that are outlined and in place, and not that only accredited suppliers are doing that, but we require it, and it's not even an option. And so you're going to have that peace of mind. You know, recalls happen every day in every industry. You know, if you watch the CPSC's website, you see them getting listed all the time. How you handle an issue or an incident, that is going to determine whether it becomes a positive or a negative to you. We had an industry supplier a few years ago deal with a power bank recall. They actually came out on the better side of it because they had a recall recovery plan in place and executed it perfectly. And it actually ended up gaining more trust throughout the industry for them. Does that help? That is very thorough, my friend. If I'm listening to this podcast, I am taking notes. And I think what I leave with is it's obviously a better situation to be working with a supplier that has gone through this training and has the resources to, to help you, but that's not everything. So I think that that's important. And also understand that there's liability on both sides, I think is realistic and I think important for distributors and suppliers to understand. To that, I do not want to show any disrespect to the other suppliers out there in the industry that have robust, fantastic programs in place. This isn't for everyone, but we do. I would hope those that are not participating right now but have robust programs, that as we create more end buyer awareness, that they see a need for it. But I'm not out here to tell you that there's only one way to do it. There's never one way to do anything. But make sure you're working closely with those suppliers and vetting them to make sure that they can protect you. That's really what the story comes down to. One of the things that we don't talk about, but I find through my consulting and talking to a lot of different distributors, smaller distributors, 
is how few of them have liability insurance. I mean, even for small type of things that may happen within their business, it just amazes me. When you talk about liability insurance, they go, what is that? You should have that. As you were saying earlier, Tim, to me, that's just another layer of protection to help you out in the event something were to come down. Now, I don't know if it would cover these type of things, but certainly having that extra layer would be very helpful. It is helpful. The downside of it, it's after the fact. So the more you can do proactively up front, puts you in a much better place. But yeah, liability insurance is important because there are going to be expenses. Going back to my recall discussion a minute ago, the more effective your recall plan is, the less that's going to cost you in the long run. It gets really expensive when you don't have a plan in place that cannot execute one effectively. And so at some point in there, you're probably going to need some insurance. But how much, what it's all going to cost, it's not cheap. I can't answer that for people because it's not a cheap endeavor. Tim, I'm just curious. Do you get a lot of calls from distributors who might be in a situation and sort of see you as this guy that might give them five or 10 minutes of advice? I mean, I would just think that there's a need for some sort of resource. You certainly could be that resource in terms of the knowledge that you have, but you don't have the time to, you know, for free help all these folks that might have a question. I mean, where would folks go for that? Well, first off, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't give legal advice. So while I can talk about these topics and things like this, I must always preface when I'm giving somebody some guidance, this is not legal advice. If you look at all the PPAI webinars on this topic, they always have their disclaimer. Where they can go, start at PPAI. Contact Ann Stone. She used to be my director when I worked there. She got this initiative off the ground there at PPAI. That's what a trade association is for. That's why they have this thing in place. I received a lot more phone calls on this from distributors across the industry to ask for guidance when I was there than I do here. I get it more from select distributors here, primarily our distributor advocacy group. But others will call me once in a while and ask questions because I've had a relationship with them throughout the years in the industry. And that's fine. But I always am very careful about what I tell them. I try to explain the situation and what the options and things are out there. I can't tell people, you must do this. I'm not a lawyer. And if I start you know, having those kind of conversations and advice, now I've set myself and my organization up big time. And so obviously we're a compliance organization. I'm going to be as compliant as I can on all aspects. But yeah, there is a need out there for it. And I think PPAI right now fills that bill and not just themselves. You know, they have, and we, we have partner labs, AI and SECO, Asian Inspection. They're a partner lab with QCA. They've done work with PPAI. UL does a lot of work with PPAI. There's other ones out there. There's SGS, there's Intertech, Bureau of Veritas. There's different labs out there that usually will have some conversations with you around this stuff. And so there's different resources out there. PPAI will use those resources extensively to help get you an answer. Sometimes it's just giving you the contact of who to call at one of these places. They have access to product liability attorneys that they can put you in touch with. So the resources are there. I would always say start with PPAI first. Great. Thank you. Hey, Tim, we, I think, could honestly go on for another couple of hours because we have barely scratched (laughs) the surface of our questions here. But why don't we ask one more question of each of the two of you gentlemen and then Robert will move into the finale with his rapid fire line of questioning, which is always very enjoyable for people. So I just wanted to give people a heads up. Okay, so Cliff, I'm going to ask this one of you. And then Robert, why don't you ask the last one of our friend Tim? 
Cliff, in your supplier days, how did you manage product safety issues when you were manufacturing products? As this was a few years ago, was product safety as much a thing as it is now? It's a good question. We had a direct relationship when I owned the headwear company. We had our strategic partner in China was actually not just a manufacturer for us, but he was one of our five, six partners that we were all together. So our factory was a part of our global network. So it wasn't like we were using a, a third party, if you will. And so we really didn't have many issues with that at all. You know, we didn't have issues with child labor and all that other type of things. But when I got into the plush toy side, that was quite an eye opener. I remember getting a, uh, when we initially sourced the different factories, I had a young lady there from the days when I had the headwear company who acted as our liaison there in China. She spoke both Mandarin and Cantonese, which was really unusual, but it was great. And we got this massive, beautiful testing document from the factory and everybody in lab coats and it looked like you could eat off the floor. And then it was recommended that we get a third party to go in there and do a test. And it was a shocker what we found. And it was just nothing like it was portrayed. So we made a diligent effort to make sure that we did a lot of third-party testing. I read up on everything that there could be, you know, things that you had to be mindful of. And we were very clear on doing factory inspections on a regular basis to ensure that we didn't have any issues with metal inside the plush and asking the questions, for instance, if the who was the recipient of the piece, if it was going to be young kids, that we made sure that they were sewn in eyes and not plastic eyes that roll around inside one another, the plastic eyes. So we did do a lot when it came to that. So we asked a lot of questions of the distributor and we actually educated the distributor, I think, on a great level so that they went in, they were better equipped to ask the questions of the client when they move forward. Tim, rapid fire, are you ready, bud? I don't know, but we'll, we'll see what we got. We'll be gentle. We'll be gentle. John or Paul? Paul. Keith or Mick? Keith. The Clash or the Ramones? All Ramones. Grey Poupon or Gouldens? <laughs> <laughs> of course, Grey Poupon. <laughs> and finally, Pop Rocks or Hot Tamales? Pop Rocks. Boom. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> That was great. Good work. <laughs> Danny Rosen would approve of the Pop Rocks. Yes, he would. <laughs> I love Danny. He's great. Yeah. Now, they're product safe, right? Those Pop Rocks? I hope so. I do not know. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> Only if you don't put them in like a, a you know a gallon of Coke and drink it. Yeah. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's all be... how you use the product. It's intended Cause that, use. Because <laughs> that's how Mikey died, right? That's right. Oh, yeah. I did. Yeah. Wow, we're going back now. That'll be the <laughs> next podcast. It could be like an investigative journalism piece on how Mikey died. <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys are on to something. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, hey, Cliff and Tim and, of course, Robert, it was such a blast to do this. And as I stated in the beginning, I was skeptical. I was thinking, oh, gosh, this is going to be boring. But I can tell you that it was the exact opposite. And I think that folks that are listening to this in the Promo Kitchen community will really walk away with a ton of value, I think a lot of education, and I think also a way to really connect product safety to growing one's business, enhancing margins, and increasing the loyalty of that client relationship, which at the end of the day is really what a salesperson cares about. And a product safety can be 
put into that toolkit, that sales toolkit, then I think that we've got a recipe for success. So Tim and Cliff, thank you so much for highlighting those main talking points. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.